0: Welcome to the new episode of the Rocks Back Pages podcast. I'm here with my old mucker, Mark Pringle. (laughs) Hi, Bonnie. (laughs) And we'll be talking about all that's new on the site this week, including a 1977 audio interview with the great Bonnie Raitt. But first, it's our enormous pleasure to welcome our special guest today, all the way from sunny Brighton. Yes, folks, it is the inimitably amusing Caroline Sullivan.
1: God, now how am I going to live up to that introduction? <laughs> well, you better. That's all I can that was, say. That was Mark Pringle laughing. That's not my laughter, by the way.
0: <laughs> Don't worry, regular listeners. Regular listeners, very know. familiar with me.
2: The... In fact, the one bad review we've got talks about this horrible false
0: laughter. <laughs> <laughs> See, and he laughs at that. Yeah, I know. Yeah. It's a mess of laugh oh, yeah. about laughter. Mm. Anyway, it's great to have you here. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. Thanks for, for, for making me. the journey. And a bit of background on Caroline Sullivan, please. Where did it's where did you start writing? <laughs> Melody it.
1: I started at well actually I started writing at uh, an American rock weekly which was called get this the Aquarian. Oh. It wasn't, well, it had been founded in the hippie 60s. And yeah, by, yeah. by the time I started in the 80s, it was no longer hippie, but they hadn't got rid of the name. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so and, it was a
0: misleading name, really. Yeah,
1: and people in London always used to laugh when I said I write for The Aquarian because it just sounded like I'd be wearing, you know, patchouli slippers and things <laughs> like that. And then that led to a writing for Melody Maker and then The Guardian yes. and on and on.
0: Yeah. Well, God, I mean, Guardian is probably what? you're most well known mm. for but what was melody maker like when you first wandered into that den no, of well, <laughs> iniquity
1: when i first started there it changed a lot over the years and after i left as well but when i first started there it was basically a male mm-hmm. kind yeah. of coven can i call it a coven
0: a frat house of coven, I, no, but, yeah, yeah.
1: I, I like the word coven because they really were quite witchy in their ways ah. um So it was basically all men. The only women were Carol Clerk, the news editor, Mm -hmm. Helen Fitzgerald, one of the feature writers. And me, I was a freelancer. I was apparently the first female freelancer they'd had in years. Seriously? Oh, yeah, seriously. And apparently they took me on because they were specifically looking to get more women on the paper. But um, even so, the two women who worked there, Carol and Helen, um, they'd learned to, they're quite chameleonic as in they learned to camouflage their self and they'd kind of become as blokey as the men just, mm-hmm. to, just to survive in that atmosphere. Just to survive, <laughs> yeah. But it was, it was absolutely fantastic. It was like a family. I spent all my free time hanging around with them and it really was, I mean, it was very different from the experience freelancers have today where everybody works at home, yeah, it's all yeah. remote. And I met, actually, <laughs> something I never told you, something I've never told anybody. Yeah.
0: Till this moment. Are you sure you want to <laughs> go <laughs> public with
1: us? Yes, it'll do me good. (laughs) Get it off my chest. (laughs) I'd been freelancing for a couple of years, and around 87 ish, there was a staff job opened, and they were considering me for it. In fact, I looked like the shoe in because I've been doing, I've been there for a couple of years and had received really positive uh, notices. And then I didn't get the job because a guy fresh from Oxford, (sighs) wet behind the ears, called Simon Reynolds turned up. And um uh-huh. he got the job and I was never actually told that I hadn't got it. It was just that he was suddenly there and he had the job. So but nonetheless, I became very good friends with yeah. Simon and his confederate, David Stubbs. Yep. Oh, another really blokey thing about Melody Maker is that all of the guys had nicknames for each other, <laughs> um as if it were some kind of Enid Lightnish oh well, right. football, yeah, but the nicknames were a lot more kind of uh, boarding schoolish. I mean, Stubbs was known as the wing commander. Yes. He, um, he still is to yeah. some
2: extent, yes. Uh,
1: yes. Alan Jones was just Jonesy. I That's guess they right. couldn't think of anything else. And Steve, <laughs> Steve Sutherland was a stick boy. <laughs> Why? <laughs> because he, he was skinny. Right. Um, Ted Maiko, I think he's a reviews editor, was snake hips. <laughs> <laughs> what was Simon <laughs> Reynolds? Um, see... The advent of Simon Reynolds meant that they suddenly dropped all those things, very sharpish, because he brought a whole new feeling to the paper. All right. of a sudden, mm-hmm. we weren't trying to compete with NME to be the coolest, because we suddenly had our own unique selling point, yeah. which was there was Simon and the wing commander and <laughs> a third guy called Oldfield. Oldfield. yeah. They'd all been to Oxford together. Yeah. And suddenly they were writing about postmodernism and things that the NME couldn't, compete with us about I mean it was all Jacques Derrida, Michel Foucault and things like that at at Melody Maker all of a sudden when previously the gossip column Talk Talk had been all about you know the luscious pouting Patsy Kensett as she was called (laughs) and visits the guys used to whenever they would go to a beggar's banquet they would talk about visiting the luscious Karens of Wandsworth there were two Karens there Karen and Karen and it was all about football and (laughs) Exeter sidings. And all of a sudden, Simon and Stubbs and, and Paul Oldfield, they just changed the paper completely. And yeah. what stood the incumbents, stick boy and all the rest of them, what stood them in good stead was the fact they'd all been to Cambridge and Oxford anyway themselves. Right. They had just tried to conceal it up until then. <laughs> <laughs> I can relate to that. Yeah, oh, yes, you, did. Yeah, you I mean, did as well.
2: I, I, I wasn't a melody maker reader at the time. as an NME boy. But in my job now is actually I realized that that the, the makers suddenly got very very good around it got really time. intellectual mm. and, and also you got people like Frank Ern also writing writing really well about black music mm. and hip hop in particular, so in retrospect it really it sort of turned from a fairly average rag
1: to mm. a really good paper in the space of about eighteen months to it, it was all it was all simon right all Simon because he came to i mean i ha- I have a feeling. I'd have to ask him if this is true, but I have a feeling he wanted to work at the NME and they didn't really have space for him. So he came to Melody Makers as a Mm -hmm. second choice. But he completely turned the paper around and then he got his friends in and the paper just completely changed. But it threw people like me and Carol Clerk into a real quandary because Mm -hmm. um, I've never been to university. She might have been, but she was, you know, she was like quite a kind of hard drinking, hard loving girl. and, And I'd had no idea how to write about these things that we were now writing about. So, What I did was, and this will feature later... (laughs) <laughs> in our conversation. <laughs> so what I did was, I mean, I'd always been a pop fan. I'd never liked the bands that Simon wrote yeah, about yeah. or mm. any of the rock bands. And Simon was writing about people like Spaceman 3 and Belgian... Uh, <laughs> Belgian, Belgian new... Um, electro
0: Terrorists. Yes, exactly.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and um, I'm just annoyed about And I, I just like pop. And I was a huge Bananarama fan and a huge fan of, you know, all of, these, all of these major pop groups. And so I just became a pop specialist on Melody Maker, and that was how I made my name. Because if I'd had to compete with Simon and the others, I would have done really
2: right. badly I mean, I mean the thing is that you've kept that because you're also a sort of pop specialist the yeah, guardian to a lot of
1: and pop is what I listen to yeah
2: I mean which takes us some extent to your roller's book mm. because I loved it I bought it when the paperback came out what was it 20 years ago yeah, yeah
1: 1999
2: yeah. I bought it and absolutely loved it oh, this um, is
0: Bye Bye Baby
2: Yeah.
1: Bye Bye Baby, My Tragic Love Affair with the Bay City Rollers.
2: Tragic Love Affair.
1: (laughs) Published Um, by Bloomsbury on Kindle now. Yes, Yes, still available. And on Amazon as well.
2: It's terrific. The one thing about it, it's about being a pop fan and an obsessive of a certain sort. And I think what you've taken from that to your current writing is that you can go and see a major chart act, for example, today. Mm -hmm. And whether or not you like the music that's being played is you understand the audience. Yes, the dynamic, yeah. You know, in a way that very few other writers do, I think. Yes, actually. yeah. So, I mean, it's very rare. You must have, like, the Ariana Grande bombing Manchester must have been kind of hit you you particularly very hard.
1: Well, the, 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 the day after it happened, The Guardian were obviously commissioning lots of pieces mm-hmm. on the whole thing, and they wanted me to write about her fans, mm-hmm. the Arianators, because mm. I'd interviewed Ariana. Ariana, sorry. <laughs> Ariana. <laughs> Ariana Grande, that's yeah. how she pronounces it. I'd interviewed her in 2013 right. and met some fans then, and so they wanted me to write about the Arianators. And mm-hmm. um, that was actually really difficult because I didn't actually know any, and I was, like, reaching out to people on Facebook and on Twitter. Sure. And nobody, you know, I mean, not surprisingly, no no, no fan would talk to me because mm. it was just too raw. And so I ended up, oh, God, it was really, really tough. I mm. just picked pieces from other, you know, other news sources, and I kind of cobbled it together, but it it was really difficult. Sure. It's just really, really difficult because pop and real tragedy very don't often yeah. con- coincide. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Mm. Talking of the basic as one of the three pieces we've selected to feature on the home page this week is the piece you wrote about Courtney Love optioning. Uh, Bye, yes. Bye Bye Baby, mm. which is very funny, I have to say. It, it, I think for anyone who's sort of dreamed of having a book optioned by a major <laughs> star, it's it's incredibly amusing. You talk about crumbling in the face of fame. And you, you say, hey, Courtney, I thought, it's you and me, buddies. Think Thelma and Louise. Think Michael Jackson and the rat in Ben. <laughs> I totally get that because it's it is extraordinary, isn't it? How just the proximity to to real fame it just just changes you, doesn't it? Oh,
1: absolutely! Yeah, so you I mean, were getting
0: emails from Courtney. I was getting. I you mean, were her I'm, best friend. You were Louise. You know,
1: I've got <laughs> I have got to be honest, I never actually met her because I would have if it had gone ahead yeah. as a film. But but we were emailing, and it was really really awkward because she was emailing me these confiding, chatty emails. I mean, I didn't find out until later that that was her email style with everybody. I mean, you mm-hmm. think that she's kind of picked you out as her best friend, but it turns out that she's one of those people who...
0: Has no boundaries. Uh,
1: has no, Yeah, has no boundaries. <laughs> to be honest, I don't think it's kind of a laughable thing because I think she probably has a lot of issues. Yeah. But So I was getting emails from her and trying to respond in kind and thinking, what about this sentence? How does this sound? God, does it sound too cheerful? Does it sound blasé? <laughs> Every single sentence. Oh, God, it was... Really tough.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I love your honesty about this because it's something every everyone in that position goes through. Ah, but you know
1: what? I've got. (laughs) I have had. I've had two unsolicited letters in my time, in my entire career. But two other unsolicited letters—they're actually written letters—from pop stars. One was Terence Trent D'Arby. At the height of his fame, he was responding to a review I wrote and. I've got it at home still. as like, you know, three pages on, on an actual proper stationery. And the second one was from Fatboy Slim. I reviewed You've Come a Long Way, Baby. I think mm-hmm. it was that album. Yeah. And I'd given that an ish, you know, iffy review, probably because I didn't really understand dance music at that point. Mm-hmm. So. He, he he sent me this really testy letter, and I actually wrote back to him, and I said, "Look, I'm really sorry you feel this way. I mean, you seem like a nice person. I'm sorry." And then he, from what I remember, wrote back to me and said, "Well, actually, to be honest, I didn't want to write that letter, but my mum made me."
2: <laughs> that's fantastic. I know,
1: I, and, and, and and I've had so much time for him ever since. Okay, that's you know. he's a fellow Brytonian,
0: isn't he? I know, he? Yes. I know,
1: I know. Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. I mean, your pieces. Is- bring regular chuckles to the, oh, good. Uh, to the, oh, I was going the enemy office. The, 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 RVP, a, but... the RVP office. I mean, at least I would say every other week, Mark's oh, laughing out loud. It's because this is... ad- adding a piece of yours <laughs> yeah. from, from far <laughs> yes. far era. But you are an incredibly funny writer. Oh, and I enjoyed rereading these. These pieces, the Courtney piece, the piece about uh, the day you spent with oh, being, Girls Aloud, or being, at least with Cheryl and, and Nicola. Yes. Cheryl yeah. Nicola, is that correct?
1: Yeah, I think it was, uh, God, I remember.
0: Well, Cheryl anyway, yeah, Cheryl and Nicola, and then maybe the rest of them. But you go along, they're promoting love machines. Which probably mm. maybe their most was that the most successful well known song? I think it's the top oh, ranking song on Spotify. Really? Yeah, oh, bizarrely. God. It's their second album and you'd go along and you take part in the photo session and everything. Yeah, that I was mean, this is the kind of that. thing that you, that you made uniquely yours as an approach to writing about pop, did you dr- not? Is that fair to say?
1: Well, do you know, what I really, really wanted to do early on was work for Smash Hits. That was my my massive desire. That makes sense. And, sure. and I kind of took that sensibility with me. Despite the fact that I was writing for serious papers, you mm-hmm. know, for adult papers. And so being a girl allowed for a day is exactly the kind of thing a yeah. Smash Hits writer would have done. You know, Chris Heath or, or something yeah, like yeah. that. Yeah. Tom, Tom Hibbert. Oh, a train was. There. <laughs> God, have we gone back in time? That, that was very, very weird,
0: wasn't it? it what was train weird. was that? It was a ghost train.
1: <laughs> God, it's the 8510 Lord Bullismore <laughs> on his way to. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah.
3: Um,
2: but, but yeah, you're, so, yes, you're right. It is a kind of smash its sort of story, isn't it? Yeah. I, 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 well, one of the, Again, I didn't read smash hits at the time. I was an NME snob. And mm. one of the joys of my job is reading, particularly the first four years, when you have people like Neil Tennant and all that. Mm. And, and they do things like that. And, yes.
0: There's a, there's a refreshing irreverence, isn't that, yes. there? Yeah. Yes. Uh, and... Um, so, so I, I really enjoyed that piece from 2004. Uh, mm. the, I don't know when you started writing for the Guardian. Um, probably 1990. 1990. Yeah,
1: 1990. I yeah. Did, and, and I started. That I meant to go on. The very first thing I ever wrote was a Kylie review. Was it there? You mm. go. Yeah, right. Excellent. So you made your yeah.
0: marks there straight away. Anyway, I did maybe just a, a brief discussion just about, you know, the pop music of the last. 20 years, shall we mm. say, as someone who grew up on, you know, classic 60s and 70s pop, you know, whether it was The Beatles, Town the Motor, and then in terms of where I came in as a, as a sort of pubescent mm. teenager, glam rock, you know, I don't engage, obviously, with with pop in the same mm. way. I mean, of course I don't. You know, what do you think's happened to pop since, since, since you wrote that first piece for um, The Guardian? I
1: would say that... <laughs> What has happened to pop, the, the chain, I mean, pop has done an absolutely massive, I wouldn't say about face, but it's gone off at a right angle to where it was before. And I would say that's happened mostly in the last 15 years or mm. so, when dance music became the prevailing form of um, streaming and, and the kind of thing, that, and yeah. what younger people were listening to. And then pop musicians, younger pop musicians came on board. And then you got people like Rihanna and Katy Perry and... Britney and Christina Aguilera, and they were all influenced one way or another by dance music, by beats, basically. And as we've gone along, it's become no longer so much about melody. It's Mm -hmm. all about beats and rhythm. Mm -hmm. And I was listening to, I heard some Billie Eilish song while I was in a shop the other day. And by the way, I think I really like Billie Eilish and I I absolutely love Bad Guy. I think it's such a single of the year. But Billie Eilish has also spawned, her her very unique singing style, you know, she's very mumbly. It's all about, being on drugs in your teen bedroom or something like that. Yeah. You know, or being on... I mean, kids don't drink cherry brandy anymore. But, you know, it's... <laughs> a, Maybe it'll it's come back you now I mean, She's got a kind of sedated quality to her voice. Yep. Like, I'm a tough guy. Yeah. Like you really rough, guy. <Yeah>. Just can't
4: get enough,
1: guy. Just always so yeah. puff, guy. I'm that bad type. Make your mama sad type. Make your girlfriend mad type. seduce your dad type. I'm the bad guy. And she spawned a whole wave of imitators in her wake. Duh. And that I'm finding really irritating because Mm -hmm. there's only one Billie Eilish. Others can't do it, but I keep hearing more and more of it. I mean, actually, Dua Lipa is another of those except that she was before Mm -hmm. Billie Eilish. But there just seems to be this... I'd I'd love to know how this happened, the kind of tendency towards... More women than ever before Mm -hmm. are fronting pop records and have pop careers. And it's actually, I think, quite difficult for a guy, a male pop singer, to get his... I mean, look at the former members of One Direction. I mean, Liam Payne is... uh, God, he's released, I think it's a Christmas album. And the pop justice forums have been all over it, absolutely disparaging it. (laughs) And, you know, none of them are really living up to the greater than the sum of the parts. That mm. was One Direction, but sorry.
2: Uh, well, is it partly because of the growth of Instagram that women mm. are inherently sort of more mm. appropriate as mm. providers of content in Instagram than men in certain sort of? that, Yes,
1: Yes, that's, that's exactly what it is. I mean, women took to social media, particularly Instagram because it's so visual, yeah. I think, before men really did. Mm-hmm. And because with women, it's all about, initially, Instagram was all about sharing with their friends, sharing their shopping hauls yes. and their makeup, and then pop singers got on board with that, and now every major pop singer has a social media team. So yes, and it's very hard to find a unique pop singer. Now, I mean, I think Billie Eilish is, but mm-hmm. again, she's she spawned a, a whole coterie of, of imitators. Right. and That's going to be the next thing until the very next thing yeah. comes along. But I do find the kind of mumbliness yes. really irritating.
2: Um, but before that, we had the, the auto tune sort of generation. Yes, yes, winners.
1: Which found its way into rap. I think, was Cher the first person to use a vocoder?
2: Uh, not of a vocoder, but she may have been the first person to use auto But isn't same thing. It's not, is it's it not like, actually the same thing. The coder is actually a sort of synthesizing the voice.
4: Ah,
1: auto tune okay.
2: is a way of. Re- Retuning the voice, but if you use it severely, it sort of becomes vocoder-ish, and you right. get these odd steps in the singing where it steps the, rather mm. than the note curving up. Right, it steps up and so ah, on. And so, okay, forth. so right. I, I mean, she, I'm, I, she may have been the first.
1: Believe of course. Right. Yes, <laughs> yes. Yeah. So
2: Then there was a period about
1: eight years ago when you just heard it all the time. Everywhere. And the first person, I think, was it Ty or T.I.? I'm showing my <laughs> The rapper. Yeah. Ty, T.I.? I, I don't look at me. <laughs> oh, God. Three middle-aged people here, kids. <laughs> Anyway, he was... Exposed. Listen to us. We know what
0: we're talking about. Anyway,
1: he, T.I., was the first person, as far as I know, to extensively use it in yeah. hip-hop, but now okay. it's become an absolute... Uh, just I it's mean,
2: horrible, yeah. personally. I mean, it sets my teeth on edge. Yeah, like, no,
1: absolutely. But although you could say that using autotune is a kind of art form in itself, and people have come up with an entirely different range of sounds yeah. from the natural voice. Sure. But The last 20 years
0: is also about these huge TV shows, of course. I mean, the mm. Girls allowed, girls Aloud, when you interviewed them, they had, they had won Pop Stars, The mm. Rivals, and, of course, there was American Idol and The States. Yeah. I mean, those shows, the X Facts and so forth, The Voice, they've really changed the nature uh. of... Pop fame, in a way, would you, would you agree?
1: Uh, absolutely, because. They, You know the quote from Walter, whose name I can't remember, about the royal family, you should never let daylight in upon magic? Mm-hmm. Well, that was what happened with these reality shows. They let daylight mm-hmm. in upon magic. You actually saw how pop groups were put together. You realised that it wasn't all as magical as you thought. It really was a series of hard A&R decisions mm-hmm. and lots of tears at the end of yeah. it. And yes, of course, that did. And, and, and also, it made audiences... Obviously, it made millions of kids out there think, oh, I can be a pop star sure. too. But it's also, I think it's really cheapened production values because mm. for a while, the X Factor had the Christmas single every single year yeah. and people were tr- and others were mm. trying to write tunes that they thought would appeal to the same audience yeah, that yeah. the X Factor singles. Mm. So I think it's been a really terrible... Yeah. Um, in, in parallel paper,
0: with... Sorry.
2: sorry no, also introduced this kind of oversoling the over melismatic yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes. Exactly. You know, where no-one was singing the tune anymore. They were yeah. just yeah. like kind of racing around... Yeah, it's all they're,
1: they're all basically belting to yeah. the galleries. Yeah. Um I mean the funny thing is I actually interviewed Simon Cowell when mm-hmm. he was still an RCA Records right. and man. So interesting. <laughs> A&R man and yeah. I, I spoke to him on the phone he had just this is what this is like years before the X Factor or anything else and he had just signed a, a they were going to be competition to well, the Spice Girls they were called Something like Last Girl Standing or something like that. I can't think of the name. It was Girl Something. Anyway, yeah. and so I was talking to him on the phone and I said, So you expect them to do well? And he goes, Yeah, of course they will. And I said, But what if they don't? And he goes, We'll drop them. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. even then, even then.
0: Yeah. Well, in parallel with. Those TV shows, of course, are things like the Brit School. And mm. the, so the last of the pieces is this interview you did very early in the story of Adele. Oh. And I mean, I can remember thinking, and I don't know whether you felt the same, but it was just there was something about me that bristled this idea of kids going to school mm. learning how to be pop stars. I now understand and mm. accept it as Even if one of them was, of the Amy, was Amy
2: Winehouse. Amy Winehouse, of course, was had been there as well. Yeah. But
0: you interview her just at the start of her journey in her mum's kitchen in, in West Norwood. Norwood. <laughs> and, I mean... It's no, her
1: kitchen as well. Her kitchen as she well. She lived there as well, well in, a, in a flat above a shop
0: in West Norwood. Uh, that, yeah, I mean, and from such humble origins, mm. superstars are, are, are spawned. It's, it's amazing always to read an interview with someone who you know is going to become, <laughs> with hindsight, you know they're going to become a, a superstar.
1: Um, and, I, uh, you can know, I just interject really quickly? Yeah. Funnily enough, at the Brit school, she didn't take the singing module. She took, from what I remember, she actually took something like music marketing instead of. Really? I'm pretty sure she. How yeah. that? would be very interesting. I'm pretty, interesting, pretty sure. It? Yeah. Anyway, sorry, carry on.
0: No, no, I mean, I just thought it was interesting. I mean, I actually quite like her, though I do think she's a great yeah, singer, here. though I absolutely slagged off her first mm. album in. Mm-hmm in Uncut when it came out. I thought it was phony baloney and sort of just second-rate Amy because because I had fallen in love with Amy. I, I, I
2: mean, I, I actually liked her not so much for her music, which isn't what I listen to, I like the fact that a woman who wasn't super skinny, super sort of yeah. ultra pretty was... actually mm. uh, lost me when she complained about paying tax. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, I'm sorry, you're selling millions of records and she, one of the few artists these days who is selling millions of records, mm. has made a fortune to moan about paying tax.
1: But which... I can... Do you know, I actually <laughs> would genuinely sympathise with her because, yes, she'd made a huge amount of money. I think she'd made something like £8 million and had to pay £4 million in tax. And if you've grown up in really humble surroundings, you've worked your butt off to make those £8 million, you're going to be thinking, why should I give half to the... Mm. So you're not going to be thinking, oh, I should be, you know, biting my lip and just, you know, manning up about this. You actually think, but that's my money, I've earned that. Mm. But, no, seriously. <laughs> well, it, I think
0: it comes as a shock to a young person yes, who just exactly. doesn't realise they're
2: going to have working, to give away half what they, they make. On day and night. I mean, but compared to the times, let's say, when the likes the Beatles and the Rolling Stones before they discovered the delights of tax access, were paying, but that, but we're that paying was 90% of their sure. income. That
1: was, that was years after they had become famous they knew what what you know what the ta- whole tax system was about whereas adele she was paying tax from her first album she was still 19 years old or 20 yeah and she'd she'd grown up she'd grown up in a, in a flat above a shop for god's sake mm-hmm. so of course she's gonna say why should i have to give half my earnings away now obviously she would think about it differently mm-hmm. because she mm-hmm. knows she's accustomed to being rich
0: yeah
2: yeah yeah but, okay well i, I mean yes
0: this move swiftly on, There's a, ni- a couple of nice yeah. quotes in, in that piece. It's just, I was into corn and I'd never even heard of Ella Fitzgerald. I only bought her album to be cool, but it it clearly changed everything mm. for her and she realised totally. she could sing. I think it's interesting too that she was on XL recordings. She wasn't yeah, yeah. on a major label. And I think
1: I spoke to Richard Rogers. You XL did? You, uh,
0: Richard Russell, in Russell, fact. Sorry. Yeah, if you'd spoken mm. to Richard Rogers, you, you'd have been doing very well. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But Richard Russell, of course, you know, XL was identified with, you know, with Radiohead, with mm. MIA, with yeah. another of their female artists, was Peaches, Yeah. About, far, far away from Adele. But obviously, Adele has made Russell yeah. you know, millions mm-hmm. and millions. Great and, record label. And he's been, I mean, exactly, really, I do think it's, it's, really, it's a great, really a great label. record label.
4: There's a fire starting in my heart, reaching a fever pitch, and it's bringing me out the dark.
0: So, Ooh. what are you working on at the moment? And you, uh, yeah.
4: <laughs> yes.
1: I have just interviewed a Les McEwen from the Bay City Rollers. Ah, uh, <laughs> the well, rollers you know, roll on. This is, this the is rollers good. roll on for Record Collector magazine. Yeah. And this is Melody Maker comes into this again. A friend of mine from Melody Maker is now the editor of Record Collector, Paul Lester. Paul Lester, of um, course. He's also get, on Rock's Back Pages. You should get him on to talk, by the way, because he's, he's hilarious. But uh, so I did this because the Bay City Rollers are not as uncool as you think they are anymore. <laughs> well, partly because of you, I think. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think, I think I if you then, did
0: then. make them cool. I think your tragic love affair... <laughs> gave I think the Bass City Rollers a kind of kudos that they, that they I, hadn't really
1: afterlife. had before. I, yeah. I
2: definitely an afterlife. I, I, th- I think I think that's absolutely right. Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah.
1: But it, it's really because, of, as far as record collectors are concerned, their coolness stems from the fact that a lot of people are now actually mentioning them in the same breath as the Raspberries and Cheap Trick and other Power Poppers from the 70s. Mm. So the Rollers are starting to, and of course they massively influenced the Ramones. I mean, the Ramones were very vocal about that.
0: Yeah, no, that's um, true.
1: And people are now starting to look back and say, oh God, we've really over Look, these guys—they were power pop.
0: Great, Caroline. Lovely to talk with you. We could we could talk for far longer about your your career, and we you oh, must let's. come back in some other time. <laughs> oh, let's. Yes, yes, yes. When I said I had to get back to Brighton, you know, I was lying. I have another three hours. You must come back again sometime. And I'd we'll, love to. We'll pick up where we left I'm, off. I'm sorry, I didn't get a
2: chance to mention you'd reviewed two generations of Pringles. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. Yes. <laughs> but we'll talk about that another time. Another day. time. Really great to have you here today. Thank you
1: very much. Thank you for having me. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. And you too. <laughs> Thank you so much, Caroline. See you. Bye. Bye bye, baby. baby bye baby, baby. Bye bye. Bye bye baby, baby,
0: bye, baby. Now that Caroline's left, I'm going to ask Jasper to join us and he's going to sit in for the remainder of the episode. Hello than... Jasper. Hello Jasper. <laughs> hello Barney, yes. hello Marcus. Yes. Welcome back. <laughs> um, <laughs> we do need to just touch on the other free content on the homepage this week. This week, another very hip record label, Mute, is reissuing the first album by the Pop Group and so we're featuring three early pieces that came out when Why was released, and they're rather good value, they're rather fun, I remember the pop group, I did think that She's Beyond Good and Evil was an absolutely thrilling single I remember talking to Nick Cave about that and they the birthday party were very influenced by that single, and you can hear it there it's become a kind of post punk totem, that album and some of it stands out very well there's a piece by Pete Silverton from Sounds there's a review of the album by Paul Rambali and NME, and then and there's a retrospective piece by Nick Haston from The Independent in October '98. Did I, what, you ever see the pop group? I, I, or... I never saw them live. Yeah. I mean, they. I like
2: the idea of them more yeah. than I ever liked the, mm. the, the music. In a sense, they were the, the problem I have with the pop group is the problem I have with quite a lot of post punk, it was over solemn. There's a sort of dooms mm. to it. When they, they attempted to be funky, they just simply weren't very funky, which is why I ended up plunging into the whole sort of New York
0: No Wave and so on and so forth. Yeah, stuff. there was it was, parallels, were parallels. They, yeah.
2: they were going more or less the same time. Well, the free the new...
0: jazz element was, um, was, a, was a real parallel, uh, and, and yeah. they, were, they, they had a lot of free jazz elements. Uh,
2: absolutely, but bands like Defunct and yeah. James Blood Ulmer did it better. Did it better, you yeah, know. yeah. And, yeah, the pop group, the Mekons, all of those sorts of bands. I, you know, I'm going to the Atlam Hall and seeing the Raincoat, supported by Prague Vec, and... Mm. Oh, yeah, it's kind of hard work. Yeah, yeah, there's
0: not a lot lot of joy there. Not a lot of joy. Um, In passing, is one of the possible producers who is being lined up to. To work with them on that first album was John Cale. And yeah. they really did not take to John Cale. Simon Underwood, who's the guitarist, described him as a totally self indulgent pig. Yeah. <laughs> and they moved swiftly on to Dennis Bovell. Yeah. Um,
2: John Cale seems to have a record of producing band's first <laughs> albums, but not their first.
0: <laughs> yes, <albums. laughs> that made sense. <laughs> Rambali says that why is he says, imagine a cross between Miles Davis's On the Corner and John Lennon's first solo album. It's not as harrowingly personal as Ono Band and not as fiercely wired as Miles' output, but similarly both primal and electrifying. I think at their best, that does justice to the pop group. They are still, you know, an influential act. They also spawned... I think people like Tricky, and and some of the the stuff that came out of their hometown, Bristol, might not have happened without the pop group. So, you know, check them out. At the very least, if you've never heard She's Beyond Good and Evil, I do recommend it. We're now going to turn our attention to everything that's new on RBP4. Subscribers starting, Mark, with the week's audio interview.
2: Yeah, this is is great. It's John Tobler interviewing Bonnie Raitt, the fabulous Bonnie Raitt, in July 77, over... A glass or two of wine, which is sort of fairly apparent, I think, fair <laughs> to say. Well,
0: we love Bonnie. She turns 70 next week. Hard wow. to believe. Happy birthday, Bonnie. Happy birthday, Bonnie Raitt. She's still hot. She's still hot. <laughs> Any Bonnie Raitt fan will know that she had her issues with alcohol yep. in the 70s. And yes, she does sound a little refreshed in well, this, but it's a delightful experience. Bonnie, interview.
2: what's that great story you've got? <laughs>
0: Well, uh, it's not a story from her, but about her. And I can't even remember who told me it. But he told me it was great glee. I remember it was a man that she walked into some, like, L.A. party that was full of all the blacks she going? knew. <laughs> Jasper's rolling his eyes. And she, she's she's obviously had a few. And she comes in and she goes, Hands up, those whose face I haven't sat on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, or something like that. Yeah, you know, but she, she's also... she's she,
2: she, She's she's very flirtatious with Tobler. You can see she likes the way she can talk to men. Yes. And the way men respond to her. Yes. It's, it's very apparent in this interview, isn't it? What
0: are we going to hear? What's the first clip? Yeah, the first clip,
2: well, I thought we'd start with her early... Her youth, really. It's her discovering the blues. <laughs>
3: Was there a reaction against that that led you to the
4: blues? (laughs) Well, no, actually, I wasn't spanked, and that's what led me to the blues. And in search of the cosmic spank and not enough guilt and punishment is what led me to heap upon me this great pain. Um, No, actually, there was... To grow up in California in the 60s with the Beach Boys running around, which is when I was about 11 or 12, was all surf music, and I just didn't like it. I liked soul music. And I liked what my dad, you know, sang, but I wasn't, granted, most kids weren't into musical comedy. And uh, it didn't seem such a far jump for me to go from liking The Temptations to liking Muddy Waters, you know. I just, it's got that beat, you know.
2: I really like that. By the way, she refers that to her father, John
0: Rate. Yeah, who's her, a great Broadway star. That's right. It's a lovely clip. That it's very it's, funny. It's, it's, the it's, cosmic it's... span. I know. <laughs> she's a very funny, she's, she's, witty she's, woman. She's sort I mean, talking about
2: the interview itself, she goes through her albums from the beginning up to the, this point where "Sweet Forgiveness" has come out in some detail about working not very successfully with old George, with her association with Bill Payne and other Little Feet people, and all the other musicians she worked with. And we'll play a clip at the end where she talks about her feminism and her politics. She was very engaged, still is, I believe. She talks about finding songs, because she's primarily interpreter of other songs. Yeah. She used to write and she talks about how she can't write anymore. But she talks about Bill Payne's songs, Eric Kaz's yes. songs, as she yeah. calls it, Jackson Brown, of course. Yeah. And she is a great interpreter of other people's songs. It, it's interesting because she hadn't made it in the way that her com- record company had hoped she would. She was meant to be another Linda, as far as Warner Brothers was concerned, she was meant to be another Linda Ronstadt. Really? And, she, right. and she, she really wasn't. She was always too earthy and bluesy to get that mark, yeah. in, in retrospect. You know. yeah. But clearly that's what the record company intended. Ironically, she was pretty much dumped by Warners not long actually all that long after this and had about five years in the wilderness and then was signed i forget who signed it, which or was joe nick, smith signed of a that, that's right and he put her in the studio with don was mm. who then produced these well the first album which, which is, is actually, actually very very good Yeah, nick we, of time nick of time is terrific then they mined that formula for two succeeding arms mm. with less interest. She's got, had a patchy career. I saw her the first time she came to England in at uh, the wonderful old Apollo Victoria. And... I thought she was just sensational. First of all, you very rarely saw women instrumentalists in those days. In 76, seeing a woman playing lead guitar was a real rarity. And she's one of
0: the great slide
3: guitarists. She is a fantastic
2: slide guitarist.
0: I mean, there's one little feat album where Lowell George was so out of it that I think Ted Templeman had to bring Bonnie in to depth. For Lowell.
2: Yeah. That's one of the problems with Lowell producing her is he wanted to tell her how to play sly guitar, which mm. is, you know, yeah. she, Anyway, so I saw it in Victoria. The crowd went berserk. I mean, the, really? the crowd loved it. It was yeah. packed. The crowd loved it. And she was slightly stunned by this response. Right. And she said, Lou told me that it was going to be like this. Emmylou <laughs> had been here the year before. Yeah. I just adored her, particularly taking my time and give it up, yeah. um, which which her, heard second and third album, I think that's right. Third yep. Something like that. Just fabulous. So I'm a fan. It's lovely to hear her in this interview kind of playing with John Tobler to some extent. It's actually, it's in two parts. There's, she obviously could record, record 15 minutes, then she had to do something else. Yeah. And then they came back and recorded the second 15 minutes. He
3: also talked, interestingly, about the death of the blues. Yes. We have another clip. Do you want to listen to that clip now? I think let's it
2: might be a good idea. Let's listen to that. I will
4: be
0: wise. Keep your mind. Yeah. Don't advertise
4: your man They'll probably wait till everyone's dead and then they'll have a memorial television show where all of us white kids get to go on and play. I mean, I'm very bitter about it. So many people have died in the last five years and I've been friends of a good deal of them. And it's just very sad to me that I don't... It's a race against time for me to get famous enough to try to get a movie made on Sippy Wallace... Or the few people, or there's a whole type of music that's just dying out. If we don't get it on film or something other than records, it's gonna you're gonna have a situation where I'm gonna be lecturing to black children when I'm 40 about what it was like to know people that knew how to play that kind of music, you know.
2: She also talks about this rotten luck She's going to go out on the road with Mississippi Fred McDowell and he
3: dies and so on and so forth. Yeah, she really has a very deep sense of, yeah. I guess, responsibility yeah. towards that blues yeah, tradition yeah, yeah. that she so values. they loved her in a way that they
2: didn't so much like the white boys. I think a lot of guys like Johnny Hooker, who she worked that with... That makes sense. Uh, but from, Sippy from, Wallace obviously loved yeah, her as
0: well. were really intrigued by this young white woman mm. who could seriously play. Yeah, and scene, had Sane. real soul yeah. in her voice. I, mean, I think she's one of my favourite. Female uh, singers, I really do. I,
2: I wish she had made like one or two really great records. All mm. her albums are patchy. Mm. She made a good record about 10, 15 years ago, Fundamental, which has got the first side is just fantastic and the second side pretty forgettable. Again, it's part of the consequence she wasn't a writer and she was
0: having to, she's having to find songs. And she talks about the process of finding songs. It's I very really like Lock of the Draw, funny enough, which yeah. was the, the, the second Capital album yeah, yeah. that came out after Nick of Time. It's still Don Was. Yeah. There's a duet with Delbert McClinton. Yeah, yeah. It's great. There's the Extraordinary absolutely sort of heartbreaking ballad. Probably the song that's become Bonnie's most famous song, I Can't Make You Love Me, which she just absolutely tears the heart yeah. out of. And I like the fact in the interview, she, when Toba asked her, why aren't you writing more songs? She said, well, I, I feel when I perform live, I'm absolutely opening up yes. in in the most personal way. I don't need to sing songs yeah. that I've written because you know because these songs become so personal mm. and performance." I saw
2: a, I, I saw about four years ago at... Stoke Newington Town Hall and it sure, was for BBC T V, so it had no, that slight no. stop start thing yeah. where they, when they film a live show, invariably there are breaks while sure. they can yeah. and she was struggling. The heat, of the, the TV lights was making her, her hands sweat, which is right, to play. Hard, Which is funny, yeah. hard to keep her finger picks on and things yeah. like that. And she was great. She can't hit high notes, so she's having to drop the keys and something. Yeah. Did a beautiful version of "Love Has No Pride," oh, you know, which that's is another one, that's just one of just, her great ones, yeah. you know. And she, like I said, you know, she's maybe seventy. She looks fabulous. She yeah. sounds fabulous. She plays fabulously and it's
0: one of those great kind of second wind stories as well because as you say i mean she went into rehab she came back she was kind of like a you know we're talking about a decade in which those those stars had been sort of cast out that's right and it was one of the great capital stories of that decade that they that they brought Bonnie wrote back and she, she had this huge album. I mean Nick of Time was a wonderful song about growing old. Yeah,
3: yeah. yeah. You know,
0: which was unusual yeah, yeah, yeah. In, yeah. in pop music. Yeah. Beautiful song and a great woman and beloved by by many people, a key part of yeah. the sort of LA story. Yeah. So and we'll hear another clip later. Yeah, that's we? right.
2: But the one about feminism politics, yeah, you know? Yeah. I women's I hate
0: that term.
4: Anyway. <laughs>
2: Moving on to what's in the library, talking about women singers, Dusty Springfield, interviewed by Alan Walsh at the end of 68, just after Preacher Man had been released, just before Dusty in Memphis had come out. And she's very chipper, even though we know in retrospect that that was a really difficult process for her. But she says, we spent the whole week at that first session. I was gassed by the way things went. The Americans have a different approach to recording. They can take up to six hours to do the rhythm track and voice. Then they add the extra instruments, brass, strings and things on later. She had been recording entirely with an orchestra in British studios. That was the way it was done. You cut the track in its entirety straight to stereo, you know, which actually is
3: a process she preferred. She struggled with this process of overdubbing her vocals. I can see why, because, you know, there's an energy that comes from a group of people being in a room that, isn't necessarily conveyed uh, if you're just having to sing over a track that already exists. She was extraordinarily fussy. Like, in certain
2: studios, she would actually sing in the bathroom because she preferred the sound of her voice in the bathroom. Mm. She was her own producer, in many respects. Very much. She, But I know, reading later stuff, that like when Gerard Wexler said, oh, by the way, you're standing behind a microphone where Ruth Franklin stood, she froze. We yeah. talked about that a while ago. OK, Caroline Boucher. Yeah, I think Boucher? so. Boucher?
0: No, no <laughs> let's, go,
2: let's not go full French uh, on her. Interview Mark Bolan in 72. Now, 72 is an interesting period, because actually this is... <clears> Bolan is at the top, but he's going to start sliding slightly soon, isn't he? Yeah,
0: I'd say, I'd say some... he's got another year yeah, in him.
2: Yeah. yeah. Uh, she says, Mark is drinking champagne and flicking through a large illustrated history of the blues, which she says indicates his new blues period. He's feeling soulful and has put on a bit of weight. Also on the table is a Japanese magazine with Mark on the cover. He's faintly indignant because they've touched up the pictures to make him look Japanese and have also done so on all the subsequent pictures inside, which is what the Japanese used to do. Right. Absolutely. You see pictures of the Beatles in Japanese magazines, they're all made to look like Japanese. It's a very, very strange cultural phenomenon. Hmm. He says, comes off with his usual... Build. Like, people have on-and-off periods for the person who's going to be Jesus Christ, and for the last few weeks it appears to have been me. <laughs> <laughs> right. Moving simply on, this is... Jesus the, Christ uh, Superstar. <laughs> indeed. Linda Ronstadt, who we've been talking about earlier, supported by Stephen Bishop, playing the Mon Arena Michigan State University, East Lansing, in November 77. This is... There are two writers who we have, Dave DiMartino and Bill Holtrip. Both review the same show and it's printed on the same page, their respective reviews. Mm. David Martino's impressed whilst not being t- totally convinced by Ron Stein as an artist and so on and so forth. Bill Holdship, on the other hand, ah, Linda, ah, love. If anyone who attended the show didn't fall in love with her during the first five minutes, I hope they send us a letter. Linda and love go hand in hand, and her Thursday night persona was the ultimate symbol of romanticism in the 1970s. That is beautiful dreams combined with a lost innocence. Uh, whoa, damn boy! <laughs> um, yeah, so down, Bill. Uh,
0: yeah, I, and this I mean, is 1977. Yeah, but, I mean, but she was know,
2: she, the... she, she was was America's sweetheart. Sure, we we do forget, especially that. in her
0: Cub Scout outfits. <laughs> During <laughs> a- the time once again. <laughs> yeah, I thought I was raising. No, no.
2: Remember, this is uh, in fact this is just months after, and John Tober had interviewed Bonnie Raitt, who wasn't selling quite so many <laughs> records. Yeah, there's that famous Rolling Stone cover as well, but her in her underwear, face down on the bed, and all that sort of oh, stuff. A lot of Rolling Stone of Rolling covers, covers like that. Like that. Jim Green trouser press. Jim Green had come to London just for a sort of holiday, yeah. and bumped into someone who probably got him on a leg to see Elvis Costello attractions playing in Belfast, of all places. So, and it, Jim does this quite a lot. He he, right, he goes to London. Next thing you know, he's kind of going around the country with some band, yeah. Uh, and as a, a good skill to have. Uh, after the show, there's a reception. So the reception was dullsville until Jake and the band arrived, Jake Rivera, Elvis's manager, at which the festivities began in earnest. Highlights, Pete Thomas searching for a hash pipe and failing to find one, using a device concocted from my Hawkewin badge and an upside-down glass. I know that technique. Um, <laughs>
3: of course you do, Mark. Yeah.
2: Jake and I having a verbal sparring match. Oh, Jim Green from Trouser Press, what are you doing here? Well, I'm just on holiday. Nonsense. You trouser pressers always up to something. Well, while I'm on vacation, i still got to do some stuff, but here I'm just along for the ride. Jim, did anyone ever tell you nobody likes a smartass? Sure. Did anyone ever say that to you, Jake? (laughs) Uh, Jake Rivera and Elvis Costello were notoriously pugnacious with journalists. I think it's Mark Ellen who tells a story about... One of the first shows he covered was... He'd got a press thing to go and see Elvis Costello, I think, play the Kensington. Right. And... They basically maltreated him quite severely. He ended up really? thrown out outside.
3: Fucking hell.
2: 1980, and I put this in because it's, it's quite rare. There aren't many of them. It's an interview with Vinnie Riley, the Durty Column, who, who's a really interesting guy. The Factory Act, who are unlike any
3: other. Factory I actually Act. discovered the Durty Column recently for myself, just at oh, I random. You were
0: claiming you had actually no, discovered. no, no. I, <laughs> I, I never, I <laughs> never even, even heard even of born? them. I
3: never even heard of them because yeah. in all of our discussions about Factory Records, it's yeah. all about you know Joy Division and all that stuff. But I'd never heard of the Dirty Column, and, no. and then I just they came up on a playlist somewhere, or like no. a Discover Weekly or right. whatever. Yeah. And I've actually really there's one album of theirs I've listened to that I actually really yeah, liked. Yeah. It is quite different, as yeah. you are saying, to certainly a lot not of the other stuff. It, yeah. no, no, I mean, I,
2: I, didn't re- I didn't really listen to them much at the time because I wasn't a John Peel listener, which is where you'd have heard them. But I listened to them now, or him now, because it's basically a one man mm-hmm. band. Mm. Um, they were also... Who was the Joy Division producer? Hannett. Yeah, yeah. Th- th- he was another one of his projects, mm. very particular. The yes. two of them worked together in the studio in a very kind of close sort of way. And, you know, he, he says this stuff, he says, ''I've been playing guitar for 15 years. I had lessons for about 12. My teacher's dead now, but she taught me all kinds of different styles. But I started disagreeing with things that were written down, so I started doing my own pieces.'' I got into this minimal thing where you get the essence of the harmony. One of my favourite pianists is the modern jazz quartet. He's called John Lewis, and he's impressionistic in the way he plays. He plays three notes on the piano as opposed to 40, which is what Oscar Peterson would do. But those three notes will hint to another 10 in your imagination. That's what I'm trying to do, make everything very simple and work on different levels so there's an emotive thing there and some experiments also. It's... That's just quite an interesting articulation yeah, of what absolutely. he's, what, 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 what a, he's yeah. trying to do. I find him interesting. So the other thing that David McCulloch, who's interviewed this, is he points out how ill Vinny is when he meets mm. him. And actually, I think Vinny Ryder's been amazing. He's still alive. He's been plagued with ill health mm. all his life. One of the
0: skinniest human
2: beings yeah, ever looked, to walked uh, the he, earth. He's also really quite old when when he appeared really. with Dirty Column. Really? You know, he's. I'd say at least 30. OK. You know, there was recently a crowdfunding page, I think, to pay medical bills or okay. something, or to bail him out. Right. He's never made any money,
3: and I think life's been a struggle for him. But Go, he's,
2: he's admirable.
3: Going back to the musical side of it, mm-hmm. to me there's something slightly John Martinish ish about some of his guitar playing yeah. and a lot of the reverbs yeah. and the delays and stuff that he's yeah. using. And it has that similar sort of at times, an really ethereal quality about yeah. about the sounds and the way that it echoes around the space. I think it's very pretty, it's very pretty. I think that's a very fair thing to say. It's just a curious sort
2: of left-field Manchester... It's almost like sort of, what is it, like primitive art sort of stuff, outsider art. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's got a sort of outsider mm-hmm. art quality to it. And even though I think all the other Manchester bands admired him because he was, A, a much better musician, most <laughs> of them, no-one could really quite... Work out a place to put him in, and because there's very little vocals, if any, on
3: his, his yeah. stuff,
2: it's hard to sell. Yeah. It's hard to Absolutely. sell these Well,
3: I'm really glad this has come up. i have been meaning to ask you guys about this anyway. Yeah, so, yeah. There you go. Yeah, Thanks yeah. for bringing that it's up. It's a good
2: piece. It's a good piece. I mean, I'll, I'll you have to put check it up out. With Dave McCulloch slightly sort of strangled syntax in places, but <laughs> but he does give you a glimpse of what this guy's like, which right. is what a good interview does. Yeah, great. That's really
3: interesting.
0: you Bonnie? you, got That's your lot. So you, you, you're you stopping I, 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 in I've 1980. Shot, I've shot my bolt. The last 40 years. <laughs> <laughs> You've nothing to say about, for example, Eric Dolphy or British synth pop or Alan Mulder. Or in what, fact, what? Snoop Dogg, the piece that emerged from last week's audio interview is it, really great that you it, added on It is. I, Daly. I, I just didn't really want to no, no, talk about it. No, of that. course. Because no, I just want to, to mention it because it. it's it actually a good, terrific yeah, it's good. piece. It's
2: well worth a look. The synth-pop one was actually interested J.D. Constantine from Musician magazine, synth-pop baffled the Americans, let's face it. They really, really didn't understand. A lot understand. of things baffle the but, Americans, but so but let's face it's that. It's synth-pop, particularly. And it's this idea that you could be a not-very-good musician, but using this new technology... If you had good songs, you could produce really great pop music. Mm. And they, he talks to Phil Oakey extensively from Human League. He talks to the guys from Orchestral Manoeuvres. Yeah. Uh, he talks to Japan, who, even though what strictly speaking, a synth-pop band,
3: use synthesizers use very, synth, he-
2: yeah. very heavily. Yeah. And it's an American journalist who clearly likes what he's hearing, trying to explain this to his American readership. And, yeah. um, it's, it's a very I think that's what case. intrigued
0: me about it, yeah. was, was that... American perspective on something which yeah. at that point was so well, quintessentially abs- British wasn't it And
2: not, none of those bands uh, will Depeche Mode became huge in America.
0: Yeah, but but not but many other they sort of all, not reinvented themselves, but they became much more of a kind of stadium Yes, didn't and they? sort of behaving. It right, wasn't rock like that little plinky yeah. new life thing but that they started that's out right. with, because that didn't make much sense in America.
2: I remember being in Los Angeles in 1989, and they were about to play Dodgers Stadium, mm. and they were all over K-Rock. You know K-Rock. the radio station. They were was huge um, on K And one of the things, as you say, is that what Depeche Mode did was become rock and rollers as personalities. Mm. Yeah. Mm.
0: Well, including they employed Anton Corbyn to take photographs. Of Indeed. Them, which, you know, which sort of turned them into the kind of the U two of electro. Yeah. In a way, but very influential on later acts like Nine Inch Nails. So it's it's interesting to get, as I say, to yeah. get that. That perspective on, yeah. on the... Jasper, you, you've got some pieces yeah. that, that's amused and amused. enlightened. Well,
3: I wanted to start with a piece about a band who I'd never heard of going in. You'd sort of vaguely heard of them, Barney, Battles. Yeah. Yes. sort of Brooklyn group. And I have to say, it's a Stubbs in the Wire, February 2006. The first sentence of the review made me not want to listen to them ever because it goes, one avant-garde child prodigy, two indie guitar nerds and one hard rock borderline metal drummer thrown together in a filthy basement studio in Brooklyn. And that just (laughs) turns me off ever so slightly. But... But I actually put them on in the office, and all of us found ourselves rather liking this yeah, yeah. slightly fractal, mm-hmm. sharding minimalist mm-hmm. stuff. That it's I, I a writer.
2: sharding minimalist.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I actually really, I actually really liked the stuff of that. I heard it. It sort of after a while because yeah. it's instrumental rock. Although they don't like that phrase, but it's instrumental mm-hmm. rock essentially. It s- sometimes lacks a little bit of direction and can go on a bit. But some tracks really stood out. To I, me, I as think as all being, three of us yeah. woke up a bit. I mean, yeah. uh, certainly the first cup, two, three tracks. you
0: like, you said who's this?
2: Yes, who's which this? Which
0: is always a good story. Yeah.
2: Unless yeah. you're about to slag them off, yes. in which case it's about. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes. Who's this? Yeah, yeah. no, I, I I thought they were they, they were interesting and and you know, tough in a really kind of interesting way. Yeah. Mm.
3: And then Lisa Verico goes to see MIA at the yep. Coronet Theatre in London. Fabulous. But MIA I think is pretty pretty great. Although Lisa, writing in the Times, isn't actually convinced necessarily by the fact that she's because at that time she's being touted as Britain's you know biggest pop export. And and Lisa's not quite convinced by her stage presence and craft and all that stuff. But I think the music, some of it she likes when it's, when it's genuine and some of it she just describes as a sort of hollow pop fodder. So there's a kind of... And mm. I think M.I.A. does have that sometimes where some of it's electrifyingly good and some of it is just kind of almost designed to be exported in a similar sort of trying-to-break-America kind of way. Yeah. yeah. Greece which some of her stuff sounds calculated. Yeah. I mean, I have a very on-off
2: relationship with her. There's some bits of stuff... That, that I've really been intrigued by, and then I'll hear something. You know, I'm I'm so not interested in this. You know, she's also as a personality as a political personality. She's interesting. Mm. Is she Tamil, Sri Lankan Tamil? Yeah. Is that correct? Correct. And she has a very strong sense of her. Sri Lankan-Tamil
3: identity. My father was a Tamil tiger. So uh, well, there you go. Yeah, she, she, go. she would.
0: My but, eldest son was a big fan and ended up on stage with her at some sh- show. She, she called members of the audience up really? on stage with her and, and he found himself standing next to so one of the great moments of his life. <laughs>
2: That's great. That's really great. So we aren't going to talk about Dagmar
1: Krauser. Well, well, that was yeah. going to be the last one I wanted oh, to mention. Oh, sorry! Yeah, <laughs> well, we are. Come on, Dagmar. Dagmar Krowser. Dagmar. Yeah, this is
3: in The Wire. This is 2016, so I left it till last. OK. Mike Barnes, tests Dagmar with The Wire's invisible jukebox, yeah, yeah. which is the thing they do where they play records yes. for, for people and try and get them to guess. And Dagmar actually comes over really well. She seems <laughs> lovely in Doesn't this interview. me. And she's very interesting about a whole lot of stuff. It's quite funny because at one point Mike Barnes plays her a Faust record and she basically just goes I don't know what this is. I don't listen to a lot of music. It's not Heiner Goebbels. No, you've recorded with them. I recorded with them? I don't know. And she kind of just like doesn't, doesn't <laughs> even though she's, she feels quite embarrassed by not knowing it, but she doesn't get that many of them right. But when actually listening to the music, because that's the nice thing, is that during the interview mm. they're listening to music, and so you get really insightful comments from musicians mm. about the making of an album, or if, it, if it's in the case of a collaborator, or about just what they feel when they listen to it. So yeah. you almost get a musician reviewing a piece of music, which isn't something that happens. in. It's almost better when
0: they do fail the test, isn't it? (laughs) And they don't actually know what they're listening to. There's something Mm. a bit purer about the response.
3: And I just think it's sort of almost musician as music critic in quite a nice way, although they're always... It's a very good series. Mm It's a really Uh, good series. uh,
2: It's a very revealing reading what musicians have got to say about what they're listening to, whether or not they get it or know who it is good one. Why wow. should be congratulated for that. Absolutely. Well, I
0: think that brings us to the end of the episode but not before I ask Jasper to tell us again about our fabulous giveaway. Our
3: fabulous giveaway is still going yeah, we've had a bunch of entries, it's all going very smoothly and happily uh, we've had a few reviews which is always nice yes, to thank see you. thank you so much guys and yeah, so you can enter rocktrackpages.com forward slash giveaway, you can enter our 50th episode giveaway to win any number of months of subscription and books, we'd love you to do that. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Spotify as well as sharing it with your friends. All of it helps us. And so in return, we'd like to give you something. So please do go ahead and enter. It runs until November 22nd. Thanks.
0: That's fantastic, Jasper. Thank you. And Mark, talk us out with the final Bonnie Ray audio excerpt. Um,
2: In which Tobler asks her to comment on her attitude towards what's called... In the interview, Women's Lib. (laughs) And she talks about exactly that. Great. Wonderful. All right, we'll see you next week. See you next week. Till when? Bye. Bye. -bye.
3: One thing that we haven't really touched on, and we have about two minutes to do so, is the women's lib side of things.
4: I, I don't like that expression. I never hear black lib. Third world lib, so why is it, you know... All right. Yeah, okay, go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> snide.
3: The women's movement. How about that? Does that <laughs> sound nicer? I don't know. It doesn't how <laughs> you
4: mean Okay, what, what would you like to... Well, is, are you still Ask me anything.
3: particularly are you still very active in uh, standing up for uh, women's rights yes
4: I mean by doing what I'm doing I think it's a good indication of being a, what a strong independent a uh, little bit light-headed person can can do um, I think it's very uh, much more important to to me to, to the political uh, possibilities of what I could do with the music and the influence I have not only to help blues people and unknown songwriters but Things like uh, I'm very concerned with nuclear power plants in the states because the where I live in L.A. is on the San Andreas Fault, which is where the earthquakes gonna happen. And there's a power nuclear power plant built right on the fault, so I'm afraid uh, I'm afraid we're all gonna go by the next time I talk to you. But one more-
3: That was Bonnie Raitt in conversation with John Tobler in 1977, concluding this week's Rocks Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest Caroline Sullivan. Her Bay City Rollers book, Bye Bye Baby, is available on Amazon, including as an ebook. The hosts were Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Murison Bowie. For more information about our giveaway, running until November 22nd, please visit rocksbackpages.com forward slash giveaway. You can find thousands of articles as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews at rocksbackpages.com. Toodle
2: pip. (laughs) (laughs) Stop Stop toodling (laughs) my pip.